Sister Miriam Therese McGillis, welcome to the New School. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. Uh, you are the founder of uh, uh, a place called Genesis Farm. Tell us a little about Genesis Farm. Well, it's, um, it's a land um, uh, area of about 231 acres presently, and uh, about 11 buildings and on that land. And um, it was bequested to my Dominican congregation back in 1978. I'm a Dominican sister from New Jersey. And this farm is in the northwestern part of the state. And it was left by people we never knew, so there was no history. And um, just out of nowhere came this farm. And um, so the Dominican sisters um, have retained it, given it over to become uh, an ecological learning center, spiritual reflection center. And in the 32 years that it has been emerging, um, it has brought forth a community-supported garden, one of the early ones in the United States. It, it emerged around 1986 and presently has about 300 members who are shareholders in its economic base. And it also, so, so it's sort of a spin-off and uh, the, the community-supported garden, we call it, is on the land of Genesis Farm. And we, for the last 20 years or so, have been focused very much on offering courses, accredited or for non-credit, in what's called earth literacy. And earth literacy is just a term that relates to redefining our human situation um, from the perspective of what science is revealing to us about the evolution of the universe as a single, seamless continuity, Earth being a young planet of about five billion years, and the human species only about two and a half million years in a 13 billion year process. So unpacking that with its implications is pretty much what we're trying very hard to understand and do. One of your uh, great influences is uh, Thomas Berry, the great, uh, really truly great theologian, geologian, as he liked to call himself. When did you first encounter Thomas Berry's work? I met Thomas Berry for the first time in 1977, and I was working with um, an organization called Global Education Associates. It had been founded by uh, Patricia and Gerald Mishy. And um, we were hosting a conference on Christianity and world order. Not George Bush's world order, but the order that could evolve in a, on a planet that could self-govern itself if it was in order. And, um, and much of its work um, promoting the United Nations and working collaboratively with uh, peoples of, of every place. Anyway, we, we were hosting a, um, a conference on Christianity and world order, asking the question, what does Christianity have to do with world order? And we had invited a number of thinkers who were in a kind of dialogue, dialogue with each other through this week. And, um, and one of the presenters who had been recommended was Thomas Berry. And the topic of his paper was contemplation and world order. Hmm. 
And what does that theme in the Christian life have to do with creating an ordered self, uh, a peacefully governed world? And so the, he stepped up to the microphone and he was already very old. He seemed ancient. And um, he just said, well, I'm not so much worried about contemplation. My question is, what world order are you contemplating? And he just turned the entire conference and its focus upside down. And we, I don't think any of us there knew what he was talking about. And I certainly didn't. But I knew it was one of the most important things I had ever heard. And that was my first experience of, of his thinking. And I guess that's just what I've been focused on ever since. Now, what an interesting moment to have met him, 1976, right? Seven. 1977, mm -hmm. because he published the new story for the first time in 1978 as the initial booklet of the Teilhard studies. Uh, uh, and uh, so you were meeting him uh, just as that new story was emerging as a focus of his work. Yes, he had um, retired from Fordham University. Right. He had a number of doctoral students working with right. him, and they are now all over the world doing, his, doing, the, mm -hmm. doing the same work. Um, but he had settled at a center on the Hudson River in Riverdale, New York. It was called the Riverdale Center for Religious Research. And he was, he was writing papers or talks and then he'd have them typed up and mimeographed on one of those old-fashioned mimeograph machines. And he would publish, uh, you know, maybe 10 of them and have them bound very simply. And they were called the Riverdale Papers. So he had already written that paper. Um, but the Teilhard Association fell under his leadership at the same time. And the American Teilhard Association, and they began publishing different author's works, and that was probably the first published form of that particular paper. Now, Teilhard, Teilhard de Chardin, who was a huge influence on Thomas Berry, mm -hmm. just say a few words for people who don't know him about who Chardin was. Uh, Teilhard de Chardin was a Jesuit priest who, he was born in 1881 in France, um, and as would, would say that as a young child, he was incredibly curious about the landscape and about rocks and stones and things that he would find in his everyday life. And he always sensed that what seemed solid and physically um, opaque was really just the threshold into an inner dimension of spirit. He believed that matter was spirit, but he had no language to communicate that. He, and he grew up in a very pious Catholic traditional family, became a Jesuit priest, but he never let go of that idea. And he studied paleontology and went off to China to try to discover some of the missing pieces in the fossil record of the human emergence out of the non-human world. And, um, and his his writings were very, very radical to traditional Catholic theologian. And here he was a Jesuit priest and 
in the order and trying to live his life that way, and yet as a scientist was was exploring these brand new and very very uh, um, yeah radical ideas. So um, anyway, he did a great deal of writing, and at some point. I forget when, he was just told by the Vatican that he had to stop publishing or speaking in public. He could keep writing, keep doing his research, but he was not to publicly disseminate it. So he died in 1955. He had a chair at the Museum of Natural History. That's where his real colleagues were in New York. And he died in New York in 1955. And Thomas was, at that point, some of his papers were available, and he was beginning to explore his ideas. And um, Thomas Berry was deeply affected by Rachel Carson's work, Silent Spring, mm -hmm. and there were connections there between what he was beginning to grasp from Teilhard and uh, the radical uh, crises that the Earth was going through, and that. Those were factors that deeply influenced where he took his next phase. He was a historian of world cultures. He had his doctorate in history. and um, His dissertation was on Vico de Bautista. That's right. And he shared with Vico de Bautista what in French is called l'histoire à la longue durée, the, the history in the long view, but even much larger than... Mm -hmm. I mean, if we think about contemporary historical studies, they're very academic and precise. And the idea of you know history of long duration is that you look at you know the last thousand or two thousand years but of course for Barry he's looking at the universe story exactly. and he took from Bautista this willingness to think in terms of vast periods of time mm -hmm. um, and um, and as you say our mutual friend Mary Evelyn Tucker the, the wonderful biographer of Barry and editor of one of his, of his last books uh, talks about um, what uh, uh, Barry took from Teilhard de Chardin. And she says he took uh, an understanding of the psychic physical character of the unfolding universe. This implies that if there is consciousness in the human, and if humans have evolved from Earth, then from the beginning some form of consciousness or interiority is present in the process of evolution. Matter for both Teilhard and Barry is not simply dead or inert, but a numinous reality consisting of both a physical and a spiritual dimension. So there's that, and then secondly, an appreciation of Teilhard's law of complexity consciousness, which suggests that as things evolve from simpler to more complex, consciousness also increases. Uh, and uh, that line. Uh, and therefore, for Teilhard and Barry, the perspective of evolution provides the most comprehensive context for understanding the human phenomenon in relationship to other forms of life. And at the same time, he critiqued Teilhard's overly optimistic view of progress. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you've spent a lot of time thinking about uh, Thomas Barry, and um, and for many of us, he is a sort of an, a great original source. He actually came to Commonweal twice to gatherings he? here. Oh. Yeah, and I remember him in very old age. Um, uh, so, when you started Genesis Farm, was the encounter that you had with Barry four years earlier 
already in your mind as central to what you intended? Um, vaguely, but yes. Um, mm -hmm. I had my own background after I entered the Dominican Order um, was in art. I, I uh, studied art, was a painter, taught art for a number of years, and I um, thought I would always do that. But Vatican II, which was a moment in the history of the Catholic Church where things radically changed again, um, had a deep impact on my own life. And it was also the time of the late 60s, the Vietnam War was raging, racial riots. I lived very close to Newark. I was in Jersey City. There were riots. So all of that had a big impression on me. Mm -hmm. and. I left teaching art. I just had to come to grips with the larger picture, larger things that were happening in our world. And prior to that, I was a very traditional Dominican sister. I wore a long white habit, and the world I had thought I was entering into in, in its monastic traditions and everything that was familiar was coming to uh, a great threshold of change. And... Um, so all of those factors together were very um, strong in moving me out into the larger world. So I became involved in social justice and peace work. And it was all new learning for me because I had no background in any of that. I don't have any background, no credentials in anything I do, except painting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so. When I made that shift, I was plunged into the 70s, and one of the dominant issues was world hunger. And that's where I sort of cut my teeth in doing research and study and trying to understand this global phenomenon of hunger when the cattle in the feedlots of the United States were eating enough food that could have fed the whole world. It was very, very challenging. So that took me into studying structural change. And when I then worked with Global Education Associates, that's what we were doing, systems theory and structural change and trying to understand what's at the heart of the imbalances on the planet. So I was already in this agricultural frame of reference. And at the time that we sponsored this workshop with Thomas Berry, that was sort of the world I was living in and longing at the same time to do, be, do more, more practical things. In fact, at the time, I was exploring going around to different retreat houses and asking if they needed a cook and a gardener because I thought if I could garden organic vegetarian and serve really wonderful vegetarian foods, that maybe that could also get inserted into a person's spiritual journey. And it was right around that time that um, the farm was left to my congregation. Wonderful. Before we go forward, I, I mentioned to you my deep interest in spiritual biography, and I wanted to ask you, let me just start from the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Bayonne, New Jersey, uh -huh. right across from Manhattan. What kind of family River. were you born into? I was born into um, working class, lower working class of uh, struggling family right after the Depression. I was born in 1940 mm -hmm. and of Scottish-Irish Catholic mm -hmm. parents. Mm -hmm. And um, 
went to the neighboring, I mean, the, the uh, nearby parish parochial school. So I had Catholic education all my life growing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's my background. And when did you first know that you wanted to be a sister? I'm not really sure. I think it was something I just always felt drawn to. Mm-hmm. How did you... What was the sort of numinous center of your life of the spirit as you entered into the Dominican order? How did, what was the form of the experience of Christ or of the divine that f- formed you or energized you? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. Um, I think as a child growing growing up, you know, it, this was prior to Vatican II, so you learned your faith dimension through very, very specific doctrine and things that you were matters of your faith. I loved it. <laughs> I, um, I I lived on I lived somewhere else in my head a lot of times in my heart in the world of spirit, angels, Jesus, heaven, mm-hmm. all of that was very literally true to me. And, and in those days, the, the Catholic liturgy was very rich with... Did you literally see the angels and spirits internally? No, I used to see them on the stained glass windows and okay. in holy cards, and uh-huh. yeah. But that made a deep imprint on me. Mm-hmm. And as you entered the Dominican order, was there... Was that a conflicted decision for you, or was it clear to you that this is what you wanted to do with your life? I think it was pretty clear. Never easy. I mean, you're never, how clear is anybody ever? Right. But um, how old were you when you entered there? Seventeen, child. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But in 1957, when people were when we were graduating from high school. There weren't a lot of options, mm-hmm. especially in a city like Bayonne. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. 20% of my graduating class would have gone to college. Mm-hmm. So there was nursing school, secretarial school. Mm-hmm. You got engaged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's the world was very right. neat, right. neat. And, uh, and uh, I, so we kind of knew early, mm-hmm. 17 was a different, we were, in that time, 17 was a different level of... Yeah. So from 57 to 77, when you encountered Barry, 20 years in a quite conventional Dominican life. Yes, but by the but 60s, by the Vatican II right, had okay. happened. And I was yeah. teaching in Jersey City during that period of time, teaching mm-hmm. art. And in the summers, I was out at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, in the summer schools. Mm-hmm. In those days, women were not allowed on campus except mm-hmm. in the summertime. Amazing to think of that. So to get a master's, you were out there for a long time studying in the summers. But at that time, Notre Dame was hosting these theologians and biblical scholars and philosophers who were at the council and coming back from all over the world. And they would have lectures, and it was a whole, I can remember the 
it was almost shocking to have the ideas presented that were presented. Mm. And um, sometimes I was scared of them. They just were so foreign. Right. And uh, so it was just a time of working through all of that and reading and trying to understand. But we were all in the same boat trying to understand what was going on in the bigger picture. Wasn't Paul Moore bishop of the Episcopal Church in Jersey City at he that was, time? He was, yes. I remember yeah. him, yes. And he was he downtown also was Jersey City, yeah. very devoted to uh, the needs of low-income people. And, right. You know, remarkable yep. man. Mm -hmm. remarkable and man. it was a period of ecumenism. And mm -hmm. I remember our sisters would go down to mm -hmm. um, work with some of the projects that he had down right. in the... It was another section of Jersey City, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. So coming back then to um, y your encounter uh, with Thomas Berry, uh, your order inherits this farm. Um, how did you come to be asked to lead it? Well, when the farm, when the w estate was settled, um, the leadership of our congregation sent out a notice to the whole, all the sisters and said, you know, this is what's happened. We've inherited this farm. Um, if anyone thinks that there's an idea that you might have that you'd like to try out with it, um, put it, put a proposal together, submit it by such and such a date. And by the way, um, whatever your idea is, there will be no money to subsidize it, so you have to figure that out too. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it, it sounds a lot like Commonwealth, by the way. <laughs> So, a lot of the a lot of like, the competition just sort of fizzled out. Mm -hmm. And um, but there was another sister I who was a biologist, and we talked. She was very keen on farming too, and a young couple who had just gotten married. And so we would meet and talk about putting together some kind of an mm -hmm. idea for creating this center. And um, so I think by way of default, it fell on us. Yeah. You know, I was reflecting. Uh, I co-founded Commonweal out here in 1976. And so it was that I remember because it was a period of time when people were doing crazy things. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was insane to st imagine that you could take an old RCA transmitter facility and create a center focused on healing ourselves and healing the earth. Yeah. I mean, just completely insane. But there are a whole <laughs> set of organizations that were founded in that period of mm -hmm you know, mid-70s to early 80s, and some of them somehow survived. And here we are, these years later, White hair. sitting, staring at each other, <laughs> and, and, and you having come from this Dominican, you know, wonderful Dominican background, and, and, and I having come from a, you know, secular Jewish-Christian academic New York family, and yet we end up both with centers on opposite coasts that are involved with permaculture and the new cosmology and the great story. And so somehow these memes, for want of a better word, of, um, of, of a need for um, endowing a new story with the power of the numinous if we are to meet the challenges of our time um, seems like survival work, you know? It seems like essential in some fundamental way uh, uh, to um, finding a new way of being. 
I mean, the level of the disaster, we all know, right? And uh, so, and I guess that's another point, is that in the 60s and early 70s, I think many of us, my sense of kind of optimism about the possibilities actually lasted for some period of time. Um, and now I confess that while I still profoundly believe in hope as the best strategy, um, it's hard to see how we get there from here. You know, how do you how do you hold the question of hope in the face of and what happened to your hopes and what happened to your sense of possibility from 1980 when you founded this to the present? Did you? anticipate that we would be further along by this time? What's the sort of trajectory of your history of hope? Um, spotty. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I, I have a vivid recollection of a seminar, of an institute that Global Education Associates had sponsored one summer, and I think it was 79 or 80. And one of our board members and dear friends was an epidemiologist. You may have heard of her. Her name is Rosalie Bertel. Oh, yeah. And she gave a presentation to all of the participants of the Institute um, on what happens when a rogue atom radioactive loses its course and affects ones near it and starts to set off a whole chain of events. And I can remember being overwhelmed with grief as she was telling the story. And it was the first time I ever, ever had even considered that the earth could die. Mm -hmm. And it was incomprehensible. I, I, it was awful. I think if I had ever been close to despair, that was it. I mean, it was one of the times. Um, so I think that background message has been part of my work over these years, but I could never let it in too much. I mean, Joanna Mace's work, we really faced a lot of it, but you don't really face the... I, I don't think I can face the, that to the depth. We might have to, but uh, but the the there was a tremendous energy in the universe story and in the, this whole new way of understanding evolution and that and I do remember from that night that that presentation that Thomas Berry made when he said the human is the being in whom the earth has become conscious of itself, but at our deepest identity. We are Earth being human. That sense, that realization of identity has also been strong, not in the background so much, but central. And there's something in that that, especially since the human is the Earth and the Earth and universe are still unfolding, you can't stop the process and say, well, that's it, it's finished, it's fixed, you know. There is always this capacity for self-transcendence the universe is doing within Earth, within life, and within the human. 
So that has sustained a lot of my hope. The spiritual nature of matter and the fact that the unity of the universe is non-negotiable. We know from the rate of expansion that whatever happens, the universe is the self being and doing whatever is emerging. And those ideas, um, yeah, they give me a tremendous amount of energy and hope. That's the psychic energy that Thomas was talking about with Teilhard. You know, we were talking earlier over lunch about the experience of many of the Catholic orders and the monastic traditions, yours and Brother David Stendhal-Ross and many others, that, uh, that the orders are aging and uh, that it's not clear that they will continue in this form. Uh, they're not attracting young converts in any... Um, and I have to say that one of the questions that completely fascinates me, because I have such a deep respect for what the religious orders represented in the Dark Ages in the West, and how they were the centers of cultural and spiritual and scientific life, and farming and all kinds of techniques were held and you know nourished mm -hmm. in these centers. And I ask myself, in the dark ages that we currently live in, what form will the communities take that will play the role of the religious orders in, you know, over the last thousand years? And I have a sense, although I could be completely wrong, that communities like Genesis Farm and communities like ours and thousands of others around the country and around the world, uh, created by women and men, and you know, created um, uh, probably in a non-monastic uh, way for the most part, uh, that take on the kinds of issues that you've taken on, combining permaculture gardening and a memorial garden for the dead and um, you know and the work you've done on fracking and genetically modified organisms and uh, you know power transmission lines and a whole set of bioregional issues uh, and your your framing of those bioregional issues that you work on in concrete terms in terms of how does the new cosmology intersect with the transition movement and we create these bioregional solutions for how to live better on Earth. I have a sense that centers that are engaged in that work may be, for these dark ages, the equivalent of what the monastic traditions were. And I wonder if that thought has ever crossed your mind. I, I, I'm not sure that I thought of it in that way, that, mm -hmm. but it's impossible not to do those things. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if if we're talking about life as we understand it and how life originated out of the universe and what's happening is now is just so unspeakable. It's just, it's unimaginable what we are doing as a Western culture. This industrial growth economy is, it's, but it's rooted in the very tradition out, out of which we come. Mm. And um, so I don't know how centers such as you speak of, cannot be addressing this crisis and the possibilities that come from new insights. Mm -hmm. 
what else could we do? You know, it's like, what else would you do? I mean, like you, our garden started as a biodynamic garden and started by Rudolf Steiner, as, as your garden did. Like you, it has become permaculture-focused, and like you, we recognize the incredible, through James Stark and Penny Livingston Stark, we recognize the incredible power of permaculture as a frame as it relates to the transition movement and so forth. So there's a set of uh, numinous memes that are weaving themselves together in the most interesting ways. Um, you know, Paul Hawken has a beautiful line. He says, if you look at the problems, you cannot help but despair. But if you look at the people working on the problems, you cannot help but have some sense of hope. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that most recently, <coughs> I've been getting to know some of the young people who are settling in West Marin, who are in their 20s and early 30s, who are part of the do-it-yourself movement and the uh, reskilling movement and, uh, and the maker movement, three, you know, language that I was not familiar with. But there's a whole set of young people who are carrying an amazing sense of hopefulness. And actually, I, part of the reason I'm so inspired by our garden is that I go up there and I meet these young people who are so inspired. And somehow they aren't carrying yet the levels of accumulated grief and despair that one accumulates from 30 or 40 years of wishing we were further along. Uh, and even just to provide space for mm -hmm. their visions to grow uh, is worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and they don't have the memory of a time before this mm -hmm. when things were not as severe mm -hmm. and uh, hopeless for mm -hmm. young people in terms of their future. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't remember that. We do, so there's an added sense of, of grief, sorrow over that, I think. At least I feel that. I think for them it must be, in some ways, it's such a curious thing, but it must be like, there must be equivalencies to the depression in some ways, because a lot of these young people who are moving out here are living on next to nothing, mm -hmm. right? They're working three, four, five different jobs, uh, and they're creating this do-it-yourself maker movement because they don't have any money, and they want to create a way of living in a sustainable way which doesn't require experts, so you want to figure out how to do it yourself. And so this intense reskilling going on. Mm -hmm. And somehow I feel, I, I have this strange feeling that this is the generation that we've been waiting for, that there's been this whole set of generations in between that were making a lot of money or this, that, and the other, not bad things in themselves. But here comes this generation that are the ones that went down to, uh, to uh, Louisiana after Katrina, you know. And they're just, somehow they're more practical. I mean, you were practical. At some level I was practical, but they want to live it. They want to go down, if something's happening, they want to actually go down and build buildings or change it. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that intention to actually create a new world that I find incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. It is. It's, yeah. it's very beautiful to see it. Yeah. And you do, you do see it in the sustainable agriculture movement very clearly. Mm -hmm. It's very 
And then on the other hand, I, I just think of all the young people that same age locked in prisons right now as we're speaking who have not that hope and haven't those opportunities. And, um, and the, you know, the suicides, the depression, the, it's, you know, they're, they're hand in hand. Mm -hmm. goes with the mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. So what are you working at? on Genesis Farm now, and if you were to say what you're working on actually right now as we speak. I know, by the way, that in order to get out here and that you don't travel a lot, I heard that you took the train out, mm -hmm. which uh, I It's wonderful, yeah. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Was it a nice journey? It was a wonderful journey, oh, yeah. And you're going back by train? Mm-hmm. How wonderful. So when you get home, what will you be working on at Genesis Farm? Well, it's, um, we've been in a year of suspending our patterns of programs. So what had been emerging over the last 30-some years, we've just said we have to stop. It's 30 years later. Do you have to keep doing the same thing? There are new resources, new, new ways of communicating the universe story. The transition movement is doing the sustainable act, the local food movement. So much is changing. And... Um, so we're, we've stepped back to, and that was very scary to do, and no, it was not received happily by many, you know, people, and um, reduced our staff and operating expenses, and basically was, we just needed time to think, and um, assess, and, and what is clear is the planet is, a lot worse. Mm -hmm. It's not better than it was 30 years ago. It's a lot worse. So what does it all mean? You know, what do you, you just have to examine everything. I, I, at least that's sort of what we're doing. Um, but one, well, there's a couple of things that are, are starting to emerge in this time of, we called it a chrysalis, because you, in a chrysalis, a caterpillar gets dissolved to green ooze you know, it has to lose every aspect of its form and just hold on to memory and then imagine it's... I didn't know caterpillars became green ooze. Yeah, and until that happens, there's no recognition of what you were except memory. The genes are intact. Maybe that explains what's happening with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people are talking about that. <laughs> um, so, um, so a couple of things that are emerging. One is, and I think you mentioned it before, you, you mentioned that um, we are um, doing memorials for the mm -hmm. departed and dead. But it's more than that. It's, it's what's coming out of this long reflection on the universe story and the realization that death is um, not like I grew up thinking was a punishment from a state of existence that was supposed to be perfect and never ever have death. That death is a is abnormal, Thomas Berry would say in the old story, to realizing it's it's this, just this chain it's one long chrysalis, you know. Uh, and you can't die out. You can only die in. There is no out. There's only in. And that thought of all of the human generations that have lived before us being in and present is it isn't a strange or a weird feeling or thought it's just well 
Yeah. And realizing that their memory is still the memory of those persons who lived is an integral part of the universal psyche of the planet. And their wisdom and their life experience is there, but I certainly never thought of accessing it. As it, In my faith tradition, we would talk about the dead as being part of the communion of saints. So then you have the saints who made it, and then the iffies who are in purgatory, and then the baddies who were condemned to hell, which is awful. So um, this is a liberation of all of those fears and anxieties about death. And it just has begun to really um, um, suggest that they're there and on our side. And we've been honoring the dead in this little memorial program we've had for the last 20-some years where we plant wildflowers. If people send us the name of somebody, we have rituals and we plant wildflowers. And we say their name. And but we say it so intentionally that the word itself brings in a whole lifetime of meaning and relationships and we just try to make that present and then put these seeds down. And doing that for 20 years, I feel, has changed the land. And that's a very strange thing to explain or describe. No, I totally get it. So... Um, just as we have been focused on um, trying to help people understand the, I, I use the word evil very lightly, I mean very rarely, but the evil of genetic engineering of mm -hmm. our food and seeds, um, we've been very involved in that for almost 20 years. And uh, we save seeds, we have a very, very modest little mm -hmm. seed sanctuary. But it suddenly realized the genetic memory of the seeds and the memory of all of these human beings are the same self of the earth of the universe. And so we've been involved in this lawsuit against Monsanto and it just, it just sort of dawned on us. We have to bring the dead to become the patron saints and the guardians, the guardian protectors of the planet seed stock. Mm. So we've consciously tried to do that in just simple rituals and prayer that we make up. We don't know what we're doing. We just make it up as we go along. And um, so that's one thing that's emerged that's very clear. And um, just depending on them much more than I ever did to help us along. And we're always having funding problems. It's weird. We're not subsidized like everybody. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, we have this, this hillside right outside. It's a valley right outside of the complex of our barns. And I live in a little straw bale house. And I look out at this day and night, you know. And um, it has wanted to become physically uh, some sort of garden designed that is physically expressing the threads of vision that has been part of the mission of Genesis Farm. And I'm pointing like this because there's a grove in, behind our barns uh, we call the Grove of the Ancestors. And that grove represents, by plantings or sculpture, 
the people whose lives and work totally impressed me and then got communicated into Genesis Farm. And, um, and so the grove became this physical place to honor them. And then out of that now is this, well, how does, how does it get extended into what we would do on the land? So things like the transition movement and the need for realizing fossil fuel era is over, all people will need to become more self-sufficient. How do we create demonstration gardens? I think seven of them will probably wind up on that, on that, um, in that garden. But seven gardens that would look like what you might plant if you lived in a tenement and all you had was your uh, your fire escape, container gardens, or a patio, or a front yard in an urban neighborhood, or a backyard with three lots and a subdivision. And they would all, each one of them would contain elements of these threads of vision. And so there'd be open pollinated seeds, uh, as much of a diversity of plantings as we can find, especially with nursery stock, old varieties, um, planted biodynamically, taking Steiner's biodynamic preparations, all of that, out of the realm of farm production at a large scale, how do you do it in your backyard? Beekeeping in these little little plots. but And then um, they are tied together. They will be tied together because it's still an unfolding design. It's not clear yet, but two are in and the rest are starting to take shape um, in our imagination. Um, but we've been deeply influenced by the work of Christopher Alexander, who's a, oh, who's a personal friend. And um, his work has animated so much of the design we've done over the years, just by the seat of our pants, no mm -hmm. background. Um, but it, taking his patterns of wholeness and designing this garden of gardens mm -hmm. out of these patterns of wholeness. So that is starting after two years of staring at that hillside, starting to take shape. And um, so that's another thing that's emerging. And then thirdly is this, I feel like I'm talking too much. No, no, it's perfect. Um, is a program we're calling Five Smooth Stones. And I this read is about that. slowly that's, that's emerging too. And that's just right. an analogy. Yeah to David and Goliath, when Goliath terrorizes the Israelites, and uh, David doesn't go after him militarily. He goes down to the river and he finds five smooth stones in a slingshot. And he comes up against this huge giant that's terrorizing everybody, and, um, and hits him right in the middle of the forehead and immobilizes him. Now, unfortunately, he takes the sword out and kills him, but it could have been nonviolent. Uh, <laughs> but he immobilized him. And, um, and the, the key we're asking is, how do we immobilize the Monsantos, who are just people inside a system uh, based on a belief system, but how do you immobilize the logic of it, the logic of a, of a military defense spending priority that has, that has just completely corrupted this country since World War I. Now the five smooth stones are Earth Jurisprudence and the Rights of Nature, the Earth Charter, 
local sovereignty and democracy schools, domestic violence clause of the U.S. Constitution, and limiting corporate power. Are those fixed or do those morph? I don't know. Okay. Right now, they're, they're, the fixed. they're ones we've been thinking about for a very long time right. and know, uh, you know a bit about them. Right. But they have, the, they have the capacity to demobilize and de disempower. Right. And let me ask you, because I, I know parts of the website are a little older than others, the three issues that you focused on, the transgenic food and seed, fracking, and the extension of the electric power lines, will those survive this transition that you're going through, or are you rethinking those too? No, they're very present and very ominous. Okay. So let me take one of those, because it's such an amazing phenomenon, is fracking. Um, you know, I was at the Environmental Grantmakers Association uh, meeting um, uh, a few months ago. I've been going for like 20 years. And never in the 20 years that I've gone to the Environmental Grantmakers Association meeting have I seen the energy that is surrounding fracking as an issue, you know? And what's extraordinary about it is, as you know, that the, the theory was that natural gas was the transition fuel and that it was hopeful. And so all the climate change people, and most of the philanthropy money has been going to climate change, uh, were focused on promoting natural gas because it was the transition fuel. And then the actual extraction of it comes along, and it turns out that fracking gives middle-income communities the experience of what poor people have of living in frontline communities right next to, to chemical plants. Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden, you know, in Pennsylvania, for example, they pass this piece of legislation that enables them to completely ignore zoning laws. And so you have them coming into these uh, communities and totally devastating the landscapes, and there is no legal recourse, and you have extremely conservative people who hate Obama, and the only person, thing they hate more than Obama is the fracking companies, you know, because they're... So, so there's a movement, which I'm sure you're aware of, mm -hmm. to make fracking a voting issue in a set of key swing states across the country, Pennsylvania, you know, Colorado, and so on and so forth. My wife, Shaw Patton, has been going out into these communities. And, yeah. and, you know, people who had built new homes, for God's sake, were, were near good schools, and they mm -hmm. hoped to raise their families there. <coughs> and all of a sudden, they're surrounded by these wells, and everybody's getting sick, and the livestock is dying. And yet, it's regarded, as you know, as central to national, national security. Mm -hmm. And then there's a big debate among the anti-fracking community between people who are trying to get them to do it right and, and, you know, and the people who want to ban it. So tell us about, I'll just do that as a kind of a little brief synopsis of mm -hmm. where are you in the fracking work? What are you involved with? What are you thinking? Mm -hmm. Well, we're uh, totally and completely opposed to it. But um, part of what we mean by the five smooth stones is the way we're trying to address the... the um, evil of fracking, and yeah, mm -hmm. it's another evil, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, is with a stone that will take out its power. Mm -hmm. And um, so of those five strategies, you have the Earth Charter. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, with the Earth Charter, I don't know where that's going to go for us personally at Genesis mm -hmm. Farm, but after the 
9-11, um, we went to the five mayors of our districts, townships, it was very rural, very conservative, very Republican, and there was, I mean, there was the war frenzy was on and the yellow ribbons around all the trees and it was awful going into the Iraq war. And we gave each mayor, we sent them a package and in it was the earth flag, a copy of the earth charter and a copy of the U.S. mayor's endorsement of the earth charter, the numbers of mayors who had endorsed it and the reasons why. We sent them this packet and said, would you consider this? And we'd love to come back and have a conversation with the town council. That process went through. They invited us back, questioned us, and um, they all endorsed it. Wow. So that was number one. And then when the mayor of Seattle put out the mayor's uh, action, clim climate change action, we followed up and said, now, following up on what you're assigned, you know, we'd like to look at, like, like you to look at this. And we gave them all the information that they needed and said, would you sign this? And they all signed it. So now that's two things. So now we, have, we can kind of hold their feet to the fire mm -hmm. and just say, you've already endorsed both of these. Now... Mm -hmm. The first was the Earth Charter. The second was um, the Mayor's uh, Agreement the on Climate okay, Change. Okay, good, good, okay. Yeah, with real policies and yeah, yeah, actions yeah, yeah, that yeah. they could take. So now, what we would like to do is be able to go back to them mm -hmm. and say, now with the whole fracking issue, how are you going to square away your signatures on these two documents and the pressure that's coming in with? Are know, they fracking in New Jersey now? They're not fracking, but our governor has. Si has agreed to allow fracking waste to be held in, to, in, in containment chambers in New Jersey. I see. And we're going to live off the suffering of Pennsylvania. Right. So that, it's terrible. Right. It's terrible. Um, and Cuomo has put it on hold in New York State. Yeah, he's on the fence right. a little bit. I think he may see the light, I hope. Right. <laughs> um, but the, but the other part of that is this thing called democracy schools. So this is another five smooth stones, is democracy schools. Right. Started by an attorney, Tom Lindsay, out of Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. who's helping municipalities right where they are mm -hmm. to redefine their charters as a municipality and rewrite their master plan and not regulate frackers when they come in or anything that comes in, but from the beginning say the rights of the rivers and the rights of the air and the rights are embedded in our articles of incorporation. And is that actually working? He's got 65 towns that have already gone through this process wow. and are redefining their, their basic charters. And the governor of, New of Pennsylvania is trying to say that state law supersedes these laws, but he has a big fight coming because they're, they're not going to give in. But the other stone analogy is earth jurisprudence, which are these 10 principles that Thomas Berry wrote in 2001 that would redefine all our Western notions about rights. Because our rights are based on the rights of humans, having all rights, freedom, liberty, all that. But the natural world, nothing other than the human has any rights in our jurisprudence. And he's saying, wait a minute, rights originate where existence originates. So you have to go back to see what gives existence, and that's where you define rights. And of course, you have to do that through the universe story. And he's got 10 of these principles. They are so brilliant and so simple 
so logical. What are they? I don't have the ten memorized, oh, okay. but you can go there on our website. The first one is rights originate where existence originates. Okay. That which gives existence gives rights. Mm -hmm. And now that we have the scientific study of that existence emerges out of the universe, mm -hmm. then the right of what has existence has a right to continue to exist. Really, this is uh, a reconstruction of natural law. It is. Yeah. And it's brilliant. It's it, Those ten principles, I recommend them to everyone. You can... Mm -hmm. They are just stunning in their simplicity and mm. clarity. So that's also what we're working on. So we're trying to look at the issue of, of uh, genetic engineering as well as fracking from the mm. rights of the shale mm -hmm. and the organisms that live at these mm. subterranean, in these conditions, mm -hmm. the rights of the water, the rights of the plant, every, the microbes, everything. How can one little group of, of our species say that they have rights to minerals or whatever under the land? You know, this is a, a kind of a, a strange question to ask, but I had a, a wonderful uh, friend who was a, a deeply thoughtful philosopher who when he heard this line of reasoning would say, well, how do you feel about the rights of the HIV virus, for example? In other words, some people take the position that a microbe has the same rights as a human being or a chimpanzee, right? And uh, does a virus have the same rights? Does the HIV virus, which is natural, uh, have the same rights? In other words, how what you said was eloquent and beautiful, but do you hold to the equality of rights of life at all levels, including viral, or how do you look at that? Well, Thomas has really, really reflected on that yeah, long yeah, and, and deep, yeah. and um, he, he says that rights are species-specific, like a river has no need of a, of a virus's rights. It has the rights of a river. Right, okay. And the virus doesn't need the rights of a bird. Mm -hmm. So, and if a thing exists, then it has three, it has three rights. It has the right to be, mm -hmm. the right to its habitat or its manner of mm -hmm. being, and the right to fulfill its role in the larger context of the commons. And even though that HIV virus may be, and I don't know its history or where it comes from, but um, it may be detrimental to humans, mm -hmm. it fulfills a role or it wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't mean you just lay yourself open to every bad thing that can come in. You, every, every, every species and every creature in its species defends itself. It's got its conservation So there are conflicts and, among rights of oh, different yeah. species. But, but, but you can't just obliterate those rights. But then how do you determine when you talk about wanting the townships to uh, respect the rights of rivers and so on and so forth, how do you determine which set of rights are appropriate uh, to endorse from which, you know, sets of species or whatever? How do you decide whether you're going to come down on the side of the HIV virus or on the side of something else? How does that work? If, if that being mm -hmm. is fulfilling its purpose and the overall well-being of the community of living systems mm -hmm. is enhanced, then you better not tamper with it. 
Okay, this could become a very interesting conversation. So, for example, if humanity has kind of overwhelmed the planet, and if a um, infectious disease vector comes through that's going to wipe out 60-70% of the human species, then is that to be embraced because it's going to bring the human community down to a sustainable size? I, I think that's a, that, that gets to a kind of yeah. hypothetical scenario um, right. that I, I, I don't know that... Yeah. But they, the questions become complex. In other words, I'm not sure that it really solves, uh, it's a longer conversation than we'll have today, but when I think about what you're describing as a rights-based approach to um, wanting townships to embrace the rights of rivers, and, and I get it, and I like it, but it also just because of my nature, causes me to ask questions. Sure. And, but see, those are the questions we yeah. haven't been asking. We haven't been asking. We haven't been asking right. about... Um, and that's why in his work, Thomas talks about constantly that if, if your whole basis of rights and justice and right relationship mm -hmm. is based on an old s story, then because you think only humans have spirit... Mm -hmm then only humans can be subjects. Right. Only subjects can have rights. Right. So stone has no spirit, has no right. rights. Right. And we've built our whole basis of Western law mm -hmm. on that understanding. That's why we're mm -hmm. in the trouble we're in. Mm -hmm. We give all rights to the humans and no rights to the other than humans. So we have to rethink the whole body of jurisprudence. And these 10 principles are his humble attempt to try right. to get that conversation started, but they're profound. And coming back to the five stones, you also have the domestic violence clause of the Constitution and limiting corporate power. Those were the two. Right, yes. So on limiting corporate power, what is the lineage of your thinking on that? Well, it really comes out of a, of a, of a movement. Um, there's a, an organization called P. Poclad, a program um, on... Corporate law and democracy. Yeah. <laughs> law and democracy, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and that's an attempt to look at the charter, mm -hmm. the history of charter granting is that to work? Cor corporations. Actually it's been um, Moore Wardhouse and okay. uh, Richard Grossman. Oh Richard Grossman, that's yeah. what I was thinking of. Yeah. And so looking at what are the basis of, of the charters that are granted, because when we mm -hmm. first started granting charters, we we didn't give them forever. They were very limited, and they had to do with a common, there had to be a benefit to the common good. And, uh, and then they were limited. They were, they were rescinded if they didn't live up to it, or they were just a limited time. But that's just, that's changed totally. So now, with that, what was it, 1877, when corporations were given the rights of personhood? Is that, is that movement making any real progress anywhere? I've, I've been aware of the work for a long time, but well, is it? Getting traction? I think I think it's getting traction in terms of people's thinking, yeah. but how to approach it strategically yeah. and, and create change is daunting. You know, it's a daunting I was daunting once talking thing. to a, I was involved with a fight with Royal Dutch Shell over moving a community in uh, Louisiana away from a Shell chemical plant, and a very sophisticated guy who actually worked with me to help move the community. But he talked about how the greatest fear, fear of corporations was that they would lose their charter to operate. Mm 
And so this speaks to that. Mm -hmm. In other words, it speaks to the fact that they're aware yeah. that they could reach a point where something like this would take place yeah. and they would lose their charter yeah. to operate. And so yeah. the limits of corporate power is a very real issue. It's a very yeah. real issue. Yeah. There's been a lot of thinking, but we've been involved over the last 50, 60 years yeah. with seeing the rise of corporates and their you know, corporations and their logos and making everything right. that we want. We've been totally seduced by all of that. We haven't, I think as a nation, we're starting to wake up to what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. And things like fracking and some of the other terrible results of corporate mm -hmm. power and their watchdogging themselves, especially since the Reagan years, is, it's been a disaster and people are starting to realize it. Yeah. And what about the Domestic Violence Clause of the U.S. Constitution? That's an insight that was, um, is being developed by a lawyer, New Jersey lawyer, by the name of Michael Diamond. And he was an attorney with the New Jersey DEP. And he left... What is DEP? Uh, our Department of, of Environmental Protection, yeah. I'm sorry. And he left disillusioned. He said, this is not going to be won. We're not going to win these battles mm -hmm. in the courts. It's just not going to happen. And he retired to write and do research, and he began re really focusing on Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution, where there is a statement that when domestic violence, and the Founding Fathers put it there because they were just coming from into Philadelphia to the convention, but they had just gone through this Shays Rebellion, right. where there was insurrection from within, and and the and the clause said that should a state be threatened by domestic violence from within or without, and they were fearing within, that the state can can say there's a state of emergency and bring federal power to come in to quelch that, but they never defined domestic violence. And Michael Diamond's research is saying domestic violence is being done in the rivers in the air, in the externalized costs to the people through corporate power, the sickness, the health, all the issues of health and mm -hmm. autism and behavioral problems. and I mean, he, he makes a huge case for it and says the states now have a right to call the federal government in to regulate this now. This is in the Constitution. We have a right to do that. So it's another idea needing development, but it hasn't... So, so part of our exploring these five different strategies is to see whether, how effective can they be and how much more dissemination of the ideas need to happen. And we don't know what we're doing, but we're just giving our best shot. It's the best any of us can do. It's all we can do. Miriam, as we come to the end here, any final reflections on where you find yourself in the work now and what you look forward to and where, where the true hope is for all of us who are seeking to be useful in these precious lives we've been given. Well, I, I just feel that pulse of life that comes from existence itself, from Earth, and so many people. I mean, I am overwhelmed by 
the goodness, the, the desire for life, wanted to go on. And it shows up in a billion different ways. And, and we won't know. We, we can't know. And we just surrender to the unknown. And that's faith to me. That's what faith is, is continuing without any certitude. Um, but trusting. Um, so I don't know where that's going to take my future. I, um, I hope it will. Uh, I hope I'll stay at the farm. I love that place dearly. It's bone of my bone. Um, and just I, exploring how, well, how Genesis Farm as one institution of nine institutions that my Dominican congregation has put into the world, how that will transition into the future, and what it might look like if, if we pushed our evolution to pass these concepts that we can own land or we can, yeah, even just own it into maybe experimenting with new models of how that land can be, it's already preserved, but how can it be held in trust by the generations who will live there in the future? What kind of structures or institutions need to, I don't know what they are. I'm eager to explore how we might learn to do that and, um, and take us back into that indigenous wisdom where can't own the land, the land, you are one with it, it's you, it's for everybody, it's about the commons, it's, um, I would like to work on that a little more before I pass over to the other side. (laughs) Sister Marian McGillis, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you for all the work you've done here and the healing and the Mm. experimenting and the I, I'm just recently, like yourself, coming in to know about about each other, and yeah. I'm very it's great, grateful. Great honor. I feel the same way. Thank you. Yeah. Before uh, you all depart, I want to just mention that uh, the work of the New School is in large part supported by donations. Uh, today, any donation you give, we will uh, pass on to Genesis Farm and Sister Miriam's work. So please be generous. There's a little box there, and if you want to support the extraordinary work that Sister Miriam and her colleagues are doing, this is a lovely way for us to say thank you and uh, express our gratitude. So, thank you for coming. Thank you.